as a sync agent, yeah. you know, Chase and I, we're in the business, we're selling emotion. Yep. So we're only as good as the artists that we work with and their songs and the storytelling. If we work with artists that all they write is love songs, hey, that's great. But you know, that's only one sliver of the pie when we're getting briefs. Do they have those qualities, the it factor, you know, uniqueness in the voice, the production? Um, do I feel it? Just, you know, so subjective. What I might feel, you may be like, eh, you know, it's, it's, it's whatever. So then as far as how often, you know, that's a continual, we do have, you know, our label partners and clients that we work with a handful that they continually give us new content. But still what I really get, get to get up in the morning and amps me up is working with, you know, independent artists that, they're just doing it on their own. And I find them yeah. on Spotify or find them in the IG feed. We have countless stories where, you know, uh, working with an independent artist, we help place them and, and their team behind them. They blew up the next day. They got signed to a label. Uh, Flora Cash was is one example. We worked with Lenka, you know, mm. early days. And then they go on and get signed. And they were like, hey, you know, that we did our, we did what we had to do as a sync agent, you know, get the looks, get the placement for that artist and be part of that team because it's so integral as an independent artist as you're building your team this episode is brought to you by the mechanical licensing collective also known as the mlc those are a lot of scary words you probably don't understand let me break it down for you what this means if you want to collect your streaming royalties and you're a songwriter you probably are going to want to sign up for the MLC. Now, this is for any songwriter or publisher that isn't currently signed up with a mechanical rights organization. In the US, this is virtually every songwriter without a publisher. What the MLC is, is they collect mechanical royalties from streaming services. So if you're a songwriter, there are two kinds of royalties that you're going to earn when your song is streamed on streaming services like Spotify and Apple Music. Those streaming royalties are, again, for songwriters, performance royalties and mechanical royalties. Performance royalties, they go to the PROs in the states that ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, global music rights, that kind of stuff. And the mechanical royalties, guess what? They only go to one organization. That's the Mechanical Licensing Collective, the MLC. The MLC, if you've never heard of them, it's because they're very new. They just started in January of 2021 and they were set up by Congress, the Copyright Office, because this was a law that was passed, the Music Modernization Act of 2018. This is the law that created the MLC because before, the streaming services didn't know where to send all that money. They would send it to Harry Fox. They'd send her music reports. They didn't know who the publishers were. That's where they're getting sued. So everybody came together like, please stop suing us. And the music industry is like, all right, fine. But we need an organization that you're going to pay for streaming services. And we want all our money. Everyone's like, all right, if you stop suing us, cool. So they created the MLC. If you're an independent songwriter and you do not have a publishing company, you should sign up for the MLC. Just like you sign up for a PRO to collect your performance royalties, you gotta sign up for the MLC to collect your mechanical royalties. But again, if you have a publishing company, they're gonna do this for you. If you're an independent songwriter, sign up for the MLC. Head over to themlc.com to sign up. Team. What's going on? Welcome to the new music business. I'm your host, Ari Herstand, author of How to Make It in the New Music Business. The book, third edition, is out 
now. Today, my guests are Charles Levan and Chase Walker of Blue Buddha Entertainment. Blue Buddha Entertainment is a sync licensing company. They are sync agents. Some call that a sync agency. And what they do, well, they get songs placed on TV shows, primarily songs from artists. And we go deep into everything sync licensing on this episode. So if you don't know much about how to get your songs placed on TV shows, well, this is the episode for you because we break down everything. This is essentially sync licensing 101. If you don't know much about it, you will know a lot about it by the end of this episode. And if you are already a sync licensing pro expert and you have 50 syncs under your belt like me, I still learned stuff and you're going to learn something because the industry is constantly changing and the sync industry is constantly changing as well. And this is, um, you know, I, I these guys work in it day in, day out, every day. This is what they do. So I like staying up on this. And if you don't stay up on this, and then you're going to kind of get left behind and you won't really know what's happening these days. So uh, this was a great episode and it really pulled the curtain back on how the meat is made, how songs get placed on TV shows. Charles Levan, he's the co-founder and president of Blue Boot Entertainment. And he started the company about two decades ago. And they specialized in sync placement for indie artists and labels. And they have a category that is hit-driven and reflects the highest level of artistry and production. Charles has worked in the music industry for over 27 years, and he started at labels, uh, EMI, and Capitol Records, and he was in the marketing radio promotions department. He started by working uh, marketing promotion campaigns for back catalogs of high records, uh, most notably with Al Green and Ann Peoples, also Philly International Records with Lou Rawls, Teddy Pendergrass, and Solar Records, The Whispers, and Lakeside. And his most notable work, prior to starting Blue Boot Entertainment, was working and marketing Al Green's platinum-selling Greatest Hits album and other high-profile reissues from Niles Lofgren, Harley-Davidson Road Songs, and Ringo Starr. Chase Walker, he's actually an Ari's Take Academy alum. So cool to talk to him on the other side of the proverbial microphone as well. He now works at Blue Buddha. He is the creative and administrative coordinator at Blue Buddha. He's a graduate of both Curb College of Entertainment and Music Business and Belmont University in Nashville. He's also a very talented songwriter, producer, guitar player, insane guitar player, I've seen him play, and an indie artist. And it was so cool to hear his take on everything as well, coming from Ari's Take Academy and now working as a professional sync agent and indie artist. I think you're going to really dig this episode. You can find Blue Buddha Entertainment on Instagram. You can find all of us that make the show happen at Ari's Take on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. You can find me at Ari Herstan on Twitter and Instagram. Visit Take.com. get on the email list. That's we're going to get the most up-to-date info on the new music business, ariestake.com. Sign up on the email list. And uh, real quick, if you just want to pause the show, give us a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Those really help. If you're listening and watching on YouTube, give us a thumbs up, subscribe to the channel, and follow us, like us, subscribe wherever you're listening to this if you want us to show up in your feed. All right, let's kick into the show. Charles LeVan, Chase Walker, welcome to the show. Hey, hey. Hey, thank you so much. <laughs> totally. Um, it's nice to see both of you. I'm glad you're here. So uh, before we we dig deep into the weeds um, of sync licensing, um, if you could, well, Charles, actually, if you could kind of, I want to zoom out a lot for people that don't really know what sync licensing is or what a sync agent is or sync licensing company or all of that, and maybe just break down for us um, what it is you do and what 
that's part of the industry you work in and kind of just like explain it to us a little bit. Absolutely. It's a great question, Arian. Basically, we serve as a conduit working with independent artists to place their music in film and television license uh, shows. So cool. we have relationship with all the production companies and we'll go more into about the rights. There's one-stop representation and those types of things. But basically, yeah. you know, um, Bluebeat has been around for about 20 years. We've been doing, I've been doing sync for that long. And before that I was on the label side. Mm -hmm. So integrating artist development with sync and here we are placing uh, songs in a myriad of TV shows and some film. Uh, but our wheelhouse is definitely television. Mm -hmm. So we seek out independent artists who control all the rights to their music. Mm -hmm. And we find them a home and you name it, Grey's Anatomy yeah. and whatever's popping at the moment. Yeah, I saw on your website you have <laughs> quite a bit of, of placements, uh, primarily kind of, well, TV shows that were listed there. Mm -hmm. But but in the sync licensing realm, you know, uh, licensing songs for film, TV, ads, video games, all of that stuff, it kind of falls under the same umbrella. Do you, do you work in all those verticals? Do you place in for, for movie trailers, TV trailers, uh, films, video games, uh, commercials, all of that stuff, in addition to TV show placements? Our wheelhouse tends to be TV and some cool. film. I mean, we do cool. have relationships with ads and trailers. But over the years, I just found it expedient to, you know, TV's quick, fast, so to yeah. speak. And it's plug and play. Whereas with film, it can take longer. It's mm. two, three years in production. Things happen. Things fall out. But definitely, we cut our teeth with TV. So with that model of plug and play with one-stop rep, where, yep. you know, our relationships, they know our budget. Yep. So it's it's we make it up in volume with television. So let's talk a little bit about that. You mentioned one-stop now a couple times, and I know this term gets thrown around a lot in the <clears> sync <throat> world, but I don't think it's um, more widely understood outside of the sync realm. Can you explain what one-stop means? Absolutely. So when an independent artist controls 100% of the rights to their music, so in other words, the master side mm -hmm. and the publishing, mm -hmm. so... In the old days, if they were on a label and maybe they had a publishing deal, then you had to go to Capitol Records to clear it and say Sony Publishing. So you have two mm. sides to the equation. Yes. So with independent artists, we're one-stop rep, meaning one phone call to Blue Buddha and we clear 100% of the rights to the master and the and the composition so the music supervisor or production company only needs to make one stop around town instead of maybe two stops if there's only one songwriter or potentially five stops or more stops if you're <laughs> travis scott or beyonce and you have like 15 to 20 songwriters because that means 20 publishing companies you need to clear because for the record uh if you to license a song to film and tv that's called a sync license and you can't just get the you can't just get the rights to the recording. This is where it gets super confusing because um, when you distribute a song to DSPs, to Spotify, Apple Music, etc., you don't need to necessarily get permission to uh, from the songwriters to distribute that song. Um, 
And especially if you're doing like a, a cover song, you know, you get that mechanical license, but you don't need that permission um, necessarily. And you don't need the permission even if if it's one of your quote unquote original songs from all the publishers because those DSPs will pay the publishers uh, and the organization, performing rights organization, mechanical rights organizations, all of that. Totally different set of rights than when we're dealing with sync licensing. And that's what I want to make super clear is yep. because a lot of people get very confused um, as to what rights need to be cleared and why they can't just place their song, somebody's song in their video or in their ad or in their TV show or in their student film, for that matter, um, because it's just a completely different set of rights. So as a one-stop Blue Buddha, um, you work with indie artists, like you said, and so, um, you know, and, and, and I want to I clarify a little bit. Um, do you work with artists, let's say, that have multiple co-writers on uh, the track, or do you only work with artists that it's a single songwriter and they control the master as well? Yeah. So, all right, you know, at the end of the day, to your point, you know, it's all about the song. And if there are cases where there are co-writes, then, you know, we we, we make accommodations and everybody's aware of it and we'll have an admin piece of doc that all the co-writers sign so they're aware of blue buddha mm -hmm. and it's seamless and yeah so we definitely cool. so so um if an, if you start working with an artist and they're like hey this is a song i think it'd be great to get synced and you're like yeah we love this song um and then you say, well, I have a, a couple co-writers on there. You could theoretically just go to the co-writers if they're not repped, let's say, with a publishing company and be like, hey, uh, can we get permission from you to sync this, to, to go um, uh, work this song for sync placements? And, and then you just kind of have them sign, you said, like an admin agreement. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Chase is, he's the pro. He, we, uh, he lays with a lot of artists on that side. Mm. Um, but yeah, you hit it. Chase, is there anything we want to add on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, we, so we have an admin agreement that's separate from our standard artist agreement. Okay. That way we can give that admin template to the artists, have them sign among their co-writers so that essentially they are the administrator among their co-writers to give mm -hmm. us administrative rights on their behalf. Got it. So that makes sense. And and um, to clarify, because we're dealing with a completely different set of rights than most artists are familiar with, because most artists just are familiar with how to get their songs onto Spotify, and that's about it, where the education stops. Uh, sync license to to so by law, let's just I'm going to step back even further, just yeah. for people that are you know new to this. By law, um, no one can place a song and synchronize it to video. That's where the term sync comes from. No one can place a song uh, in a video, a TV show, whatever, any visual representation uh, without what's called a sync license. And you need a master use license, which is essentially the, the rights to use the master recording, that's master use license, and you need that sync license for the rights to use the publishing, the song, the underlying composition. That's when you said both sides, just to break it down a little bit further. Sure. We have the master side, who controls the master rights. Sometimes that's a record label, but this day and age, most of the time it's the indie artist. And then the other side of it is who wrote the song. Sometimes that artist also wrote the song, but sometimes there's a bunch of songwriters or maybe the producer, they have some songwriting, uh, songwriting credit there as well. And so you need, by law, to obtain the sync license, you need permission from the songwriters, every songwriter on it, even if you have 2%, you still need to clear that 2% and get permission from that songwriter or producer, but they have the songwriting hat on, that own 2%. Is that correct? 
hundred percent. And you know, to dev- dovetail that, Ari, I think you know, recently a good example is same with the master. Uh, sometimes an artist might record a track with a studio and then 50-50 ownership between themselves and the recording studio. Wow. Yeah. So I've seen cases like that and full transparency, making sure we have that paperwork sorted out. Because, you know, due diligence, if we don't, you know, early, early days, if it was a handshake deal with a bunch of co-writers or artists, mm-hmm. and then it's like the bad breakup. If ah. you know people come out of word work and say, "Hey, I didn't approve that sync. What's going oh, on?" Wow. You know, and then and then we get a we get a call from the studio saying, "Hey guys, what happened?" Oh, so what does happen in that instance? Because <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure there's been a lot of songs in the past that have gotten synced that they didn't clear the rights properly, most likely because of ignorance. I would imagine not you know malice um so so what happens in that situation when a song airs on tv and one of the parties didn't clear the rights didn't even know about it what happens in those situations well fortunately you know early days that's when you know now everything's papered but if 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 there was like to your point ari a lot of it is just a misunderstanding or things weren't communicated correctly to the Mm co-writes from the artist Mm -hmm. so that's where we step in if there's a manager or we'll talk to the legal team of the independent writer or the co-write and say hey you know here's full transparency here's what the deal was Mm. uh we weren't because we have to take the the word of the artist like hey you know or there'll be cases where like, oh, I forgot that my co-writer is administrated by Cobalt or a third-party uh, admin. Sure. So that's why due diligence, you know, we got to see everything papered just, you know, yeah. to cover everything. Otherwise, weirder things have happened. And and that's, I mean, that's great to hear because, <clears throat> you know, that is why I would imagine, and from what I've heard directly from them, music supervisors um, and ad agencies and production companies prefer working with sync agencies like yourself, sync licensing companies like yourself versus working directly with artists because those music supervisors have probably been burned in the past just from artist ignorance. The artist didn't know and the supervisor's like, hey, do you own 100% of the song? You're like, yeah, I distributed it to Spotify. I own 100% of it, of course. And so the supervisor's like, great. They put it in the TV show and then sure enough, their co-writer, they get a call from Cobalt who yeah. represents the songwriter and they're like, yo, pay us 50 grand. And they're like, right. uh, this was a $2,000 placement. They're like, yeah, well, you didn't clear it from us. We want 50 grand. That's how much we charge, whatever, something like that. So I would, you know, th- this day and age, I'm hearing more and more from music supervisors. They don't like necessarily working directly with artists anymore. And this is why it's so important. Your job is yeah. because not only do you have the relationships, you have the knowledge and the know-how uh, that the supervisors appreciate and can trust. A hundred percent. You know, we're, it's, it's, you know, in the early days, and this is a good sort of segue nugget to, to share, you know, you may ask how, how have things changed from yeah. 2002 when Blue Buddha started yes. and, you know, working hand in glove with music soups, you know, we were the filter. We're filtering independent artists to them. They took it to the showrunner and then mm. all bets are off. Whether the showrunner feels it, they may go back to the super and say, go back to the drawing board. Yep. And then it's back to us. So now with Spotify and Playlist, a lot of the showrunners are controlling the narrative where they'll go to the, 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 the music soup and say, hey, I want these songs that I found. And then, oh. yeah, because it's, you know, as you, there's, 
because when I started out, there was no Spotify, there was no SoundCloud. And the right. only, you know, filter was independent sync agents to say, hey, you know, we're, we're scouring the earth and the world for these great songs, huh? you know, and um, so I think you might have mentioned in one of your, you know, uh, IG post, the importance of getting on a Spotify playlist, getting those mm. looks, because when a showrunner is like, oh, my God, I found this, you know, and they found it through their their channels. It, it just adds to the story and, and, and the narrative. Interesting. So um, because music is everywhere now and people have such easier time discovering music, um, a, a, a music soup, a supervisor, short for supervisor, um, the, the ones that are kind of in charge of clearing those songs and bringing songs that they think might work for the spot for the for the TV show or whatnot. Um, the showrunner, the one who's kind of in charge of the whole operation and putting the, sh- the the show on TV and making that happen, and it's kind of the head head honcho, head boss of the TV show. If they say, "Oh, I want this song in this episode," then they go to the music supervisor, and then the music supervisor has to track down all the rights holders from that song. It could be a label, it could be five publishers, it could be Blue Buddha, who represents uh, that the artist song, that song, and then the a big part of the soup's job is to clear those rights so they can use it and then probably negotiate payment and all that. Is that right? A hundred percent. And to cool. dovetail it full 360 yeah. to what you said, their, their bandwidth, you know, it's, it's, you know, they got the creative, they're clearing their budget, they're dealing with the studio, the politics. So having a sync agent they've worked with over the years who mm-hmm. gets and knows their, uh, their their process mm. saves them you know they're already getting five thousand emails a day from the world from everybody so every individual artist that might approach them hey i got music you're like yeah you and everybody else so yeah and then they'll say hey you know work go through a blue buddha they're trusted mm. they'll take care of you type of thing so let's talk more about that how you play uh because the scenario that we just discussed is more about kind of, I don't know, playing defense or, or like fielding these requests in that, you know, but like, how do you play offense? How do you, you have a roster of artists and um, I'm assuming you're only really signing artists to your roster that you believe you can be successful with in the sync realm. So how do you service those artists um, on your roster and keep your relationship strong with the music supervisors and production companies? So yeah, a combination of, you know, like you said, it's uh, the relationships. So before the season starts, you know, we get a brief from the studio. So they, they tell us, hey, these songs, these shows are in production. This is what mm-hmm. we're looking for. Wow. So once we have that scorecard, we take yeah. that intel and then Chase and I will look at, you know, hey, what who who do we have in our our, our catalog or library that aren't going to fit? Mm. And if we don't have this th- these songs, we need to either go and acquire them within this window. Yeah. So that's one approach is having the intel of knowing what's in production, and then sort of the passive way, if you will, is we send out through marketing and promotion uh, our digital mailers that we send out every two two weeks, every depending on on the the flow of things. Mm-hmm. And then the third component is either, you know, pick up the phone, go out, press the flesh, have some lunch with, with the supers, sure. uh, you know, and solidify, Hey, what do you got? What are you working on? And, um, it's, yeah. it's then hopefully, you know, planetary alignment between those three things. Cool. Sync up. So, so Chase, when a brief comes in, um, 
talk to me about uh, the process of, well, first explain what a brief is, and then talk to me about um, how you go about pitching and finding those right artists for the, the spot for the brief. Yeah. Um, so to preface, uh, the, the term brief gets thrown around a lot and it sounds very official. Like there yeah. should be a one consistent format in a briefcase, but, potentially. <laughs> right. <laughs> but right. we've gotten, I mean, and some, some of them are, some of them are very lengthy and, and the, the supervisors really put a lot of time into making sure that everything is very, uh, all the details are very excruciatingly explained. Um, but then others can be as simple as a single sentence or, you know, just, just a reference track like hey we just need to replace this can you can you give me some examples of what you mean uh i I think a lot of people listening to this have no uh idea or or framework of of what you're talking about so so maybe maybe give me some examples of what a long brief is and then what a one sentence brief is so what it comes down to it's a brief is a music request for a placement in a film or a tv show or an ad or whatever it is you're pitching to um and so some of the longer briefs will have the details as far as um maybe multiple different kinds of scenes they're looking for or some actual aspects of the scene that might be helpful to 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 finding the right kinds of music basically any of the relevant information that they can give out to people um so that the music that they get sent is more often than not the music that they're looking for. And how do they describe the music that they're looking for? Um, a lot of uh, a lot of the terms on on disco get get used pretty frequently. Um, you know, and what's disco? Tempo. So, uh, disco.ac. It's a it's a file sharing platform that's that's gotten hugely popular in the sync space as of okay. late. Um, okay. and they have. Um, what were called track tags on their platform that essentially allow you to search by by various themes and um, attributes of a song. So, right. tempo, so, yeah. uh, genre, um, and those are all things that will be detailed in a brief. So if they're looking for mm. rock, they're looking for up-tempo, happy, feel-good, or they're looking for lonesome depressed i want to kill myself music it might okay. even say you know what i mean like yeah um nice so so yeah disco has become kind of the go-to um music streaming private streaming platform for everybody in the sync licensing space and um like that's that's really interesting so the tags that that you're referencing um like these mood tags almost kind of a thing is it's a combination of genre and mood so you said like oh we're looking for maybe an up-tempo rock song uh 130 bpm uh that is energetic epic um um and you know is for a scene uh that people are playing football in is that kind of like what a brief might say yeah give or take you know a few sentences you know what i mean okay I guess, uh, every once in a while we'll get one that's like we need a rock song that's that's uh hard hitting and and anthemic mm. and that's all we get and so we gotta you know based on what we think that supervisor might like 
Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned replacement. I, we need to replace. What What does that mean when you say we need to replace something? So from time to time, like uh, Charles was saying before, um, they might already have an idea of what track the showrunner or the director really likes um, for a specific scene. Mm-hmm. Um, however, they might not have that kind of room in their budget to be able to afford, you know, whatever track it is that they were they had in mind mm-hmm. so um in those situations they'll send out uh, a video link to 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 that track and basically tell us find us something that can work in place of this for cheaper we're looking for a replacement for lizzo's about damn time right because right. lizzo's about damn time is going to cost them <laughs> Uh, I don't know, half a million dollars for a 45 second spot or whatever it might be or something like that. We can't afford that. So send us a replacement for that. And then you basically, it's like, oh, if we have a song that feels, sounds that kind of, like that, that's when you send that over. And then, you know, they might say, do they, do they typically include the budgets in the brief? Um, yeah, for the most part, they usually do. Um, at, at the very least, they'll detail if something is under a thousand. Um, oh, okay. so you know, like, okay, we can't pitch certain, uh, you know, label artists that are looking to get a certain price. Got it. So, well, Charles, talk to me about budgets here and, and how it may have evolved over the years. What are you seeing these days in terms of, since you primarily work in TV, what are the budget ranges in TV now versus 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago? Okay, absolutely. That's a great. So kid you not, early, early days, 2002, you know, we had to cut our teeth and uh, for an all-in, not naming studios here, a budget, they could say, hey, you know, we got 750 to 1,000 all-in. You know, that's both sides. That's all in a thousand bucks for yep. a placement. Um, okay. So yeah, thousand bucks background vocal. So say it's a, it's a bar scene and they're going to use a minute to a minute and a half. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm sure some of your other uh, agents might've mentioned it, but it's good to a good refresher mm-hmm. uh, terms that you'll hear thrown around is uh, they'll say AM, AM XT. So that's all media excluding theatrical. What does that mean? So, so typically, so all media. So when we started in 2002, back then, you know, mm-hmm. you, you would get ancillary income on different rights or so we had dvds back then blu-ray so but now all media is all media so it could be you know metaverse the meta oh wow yeah excluding if it's in in the theaters that's it just excluding in theaters not excluding netflix or not excluding streaming services or anything like that it's it's all media so i'm assuming that that is going to be a little bit more than a thousand dollars potentially these days hopefully bingo so yes (laughs) (laughs) absolutely so fast forward to present day yeah so early days 2002 that's what we're seeing and then now you know anywhere from three thousand to ten for tv if we're you know if the budget's there Mm -hmm. um and you know it depends on the type of use. Is it a short use? Is it a high impact use? Is it a montage? Mm-hmm. You know, is what's happening in the in the scene? Uh, is it an end title that continues over into the credits? Mm. And 
so yeah, typically with TV, that's that's kind of the range there. Okay, and have you seen that uh, pretty consist stay pretty consistent over the last five to ten years, or has it fluctuated a little bit? Fortunately, it's it's you know it stayed relatively um, consistent, and mm-hmm. you know here's a good qualifier that you kind of touched on um, with bigger artists, a la you know say if it's Harry Styles, whoever, if an artist mm-hmm. on a major label. You know, if if the budget is smaller, they won't say no because they they need they want the look. If it's mm. a great if it's a great use, you know, you're right. In the old early days, so to speak, you know, 2000, what have you, 2005, if it was they could command, they could say, hey, we want, you know, 50 aside. So, you know, 100 grand or 200 all in. But mm. now if they if it's if the uh, show runner says, hey, you know, we don't, we only have 75,000. They say, hey, well, they'll take it because they know the performance income is going to be great. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a Grey's Anatomy or if it's a if it's a syndicated show that airs worldwide, yeah, and you know, and you're hearing a a, a, a hit track, and that just dovetails the marketing and, and, and the promotion that you know. So yeah, are you fi- are you finding still that the majors are? So I guess I'm a little confused. Are are the majors still charging those big rates? You mentioned you know uh, fifty thousand aside. That means fifty thousand dollars for the master side and fifty thousand dollars for the publishing side. Because typically in sync, it's split fifty fifty. Um, for the most part, uh, the master rights holders, typically the label or the artist, get you know fifty percent of the money, and typically the publishing side uh, gets fifty percent of the money. But are you still seeing that the majors and the big artists are commanding and asking for those massive amounts, or is it going the other way, like you just said? They just want the look or they want the exposure and they don't need the money as much. Um, has that changed at all or where, what, where is it at right now? I mean, I, I'd say it's a combination because, you know, as as we all know, if we watch a given show and the number per episode, sometimes there might be only two or three tracks, yep. you know, and if you take a whole season. So, you know, the number of opportunities to sync up a song in a show you know, it's not like 10 songs per episode. Depends. Depends on the show. So yep. that said, you know, I think, you know, certain pub- major publishers are going to always toe the line and, you know, quote, they're, they're not going to change their strategy. And some of them are going to be more flexible and say, hey, we need the look, you know, let's move the ball along. So I think it really comes down to what publisher the labels and that and that that's another good strategy you know we do work with some artists who maybe we just represent the master to and then a strategy is, is to have a good relationship with the manager because the mm-hmm. manager can get in between the label and the publisher and say hey mm-hmm. play ball just make this happen mm-hmm. you know we, we need to further this artist's career this is a good look it's a great placement and so in so, those cases, would it not necessarily be 50-50? Do you, if you only represent the master and the artist slash manager artist want that placement, maybe the publisher. So so here, here's, a, here's a concrete example. Um, I, I'm assuming when you say maybe you represent the master, you're talking about cover songs. So let's say I record um, a, a Harry Styles cover. <clears throat> and let's say that the song is, is solely... Well, let's say the song's written by five different hit songwriters that's part of that Harry Styles, you know, camp. 
Um, and I record the, the, the cover. So I own the master. Now, um, Harry Styles and his co-writers, all five of them or so, they're publishing companies. They know this is a hit song. They might say, we're not going to go less than 50 grand. And then the music supervisor might say, well, I only have 55 grand. And then me as the artist be like, you know what? Five grand is better than no grand. <laughs> and it's a really good look. And it's going to be a good placement. I'm happy to take $5,000, even though they're making 50 grand on this, but they're splitting it amongst the sun. Does that happen? Or is it always 50-50? No, absolutely. That's where... It does happen. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Though, you know, and it, like you said, uh, something of something is a little bit is better than nothing at all. And yeah. in, in the case of a mass, you know, a cover tune, you know, that's where that comes into play. And then, though, you know, to clarify, there are cases where we'll work with a, a, an artist. They may own their master, mm -hmm. but they're published by a major. Okay, got it. So it's their own song too. Got it. Yeah, exactly. And I and I'm cool with that because if I think they're gonna, you know, before they get signed to a label and blow up, then hey, we had an opportunity to work with them and give them some yeah. looks, and then we'll we'll take say you know twenty percent of the master or whatever the number is. Mm, cool. So yeah, let's talk about the business model of um, sync agents uh, like Blue Buddha, like yourself. Um, what is the business model? How does it, how does it, how do you make money? A hundred percent. Yeah. Great question. And so we, we we're commission driven. We solely make a commission off the license fee. Okay. Um, and that can range anywhere. If it's a sign artist, we're looking at 20% because there's a label behind them. They got machinery. And then for purely indie, it could go anywhere from 30 to 40 to 50, depending on, you know, if we're helping them with artist development, mm. um, you know, because of my label background, I'm, that's where we, 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 we tweak things out on that side. And in the old days, you know, when I started out, there were folks, I'm sure you've heard, you know, people will retitle a song and take back some of the backend performance. But my argument there is we're not a publisher. We're not giving an advance to the artist. So who are we to, to take some of the performance publishing income? So, so you, so for the, just to clarify, um, you take a commission, a percentage, you said between 30 and 50% if you're working with an indie artist, um, just on the upfront fee. So if they say we have $10,000 all in, that means, you know, including both of the sides, publishing and the master all in. $10,000 and you're a one stop for this. Um, you have the rights to clear both the master and the publishing side of this. You get $10,000. Um, if your deal is, you know, 40% or something like that, you keep $4,000 and you pay the artist $6,000. And then the artist might make some money on performance royalties if they wrote the song, because when songs get played on TV um, and streaming services, uh, the songwriters earn and, and the publishers earn performance royalties. But what you're saying is you don't touch any of the back end royalties. You only take a commission of the upfront sync fee. Is that correct? A hundred percent. And, cool. you, you know, to dovetail that, you know, I've worked with independent artists who they can make a living off sync. And the supposition or the assumption is if you get a sync in some, you know, I'll take Grey's Anatomy as example. Sure syndicated 20 seasons in 52 yeah. countries and, you, and the, the mailbox money, the checks mm -hmm. are coming in and that's, that's, you know, and then if you get 
you know, 20 sinks and, and 20 solid um, primetime shows, you do the math and that adds yeah. up. And like you said, depending, are you splitting it with 100 co-writers or is it just you? Or, right. You know, so. No, that's true. And I've experienced that firsthand. I mean, I had a song, uh, one of my first big placements was on the TV show One Tree Hill, which was very influential back in the day. You know, this is probably 2010, 2011, something like that. And not only did I see my iTunes sales spike the 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 evening that the show aired, because this is when people would watch TV shows um, live, um, you know, not only that, uh, and and I only got paid I think a thousand bucks for that placement uh, up front. You know, I was I didn't have a sync agent. This was me tweeting <laughs> uh, Lindsay Wolfington, the music supervisor, for it. Um, and you know, so I, I got paid a thousand bucks for it up front. But uh, I made a ton on iTunes sales because it was the exposure was insane. Uh, I got a lot of new fans. People like for years after that would come up to me at shows and saying that they discovered me from One Tree Hill. And I'm literally to this day, we're talking 10, 12 years later, I'm still getting performance royalties from ASCAP. Uh, this episode is brought to you by the MLC, the Mechanical Licensing Collective. Don't tune out. This is really important. If you're a songwriter based in the United States, you need to listen to this. If you've never heard of the MLC, well, it's time that you've heard of them. This is the organization that was set up by the Music Modernization Act, but in 2018, all of this nonsense you don't actually need to know. That's not important. What is important is that if you are a songwriter and you do not have a publishing company, you are not collecting all of your songwriter royalties, specifically your mechanical royalties. There are two kinds of songwriter royalties when your songs are streamed on Spotify, Apple Music, and the rest. Those are performance royalties, which are collected by your performing rights organization, like an ASCAP or a BMI. And there are mechanical royalties. These royalties are now, by law, only collected by the MLC. So if you're not a member of the MLC, you're not getting these royalties unless you have a publisher. If you don't have a publishing company or an independent songwriter, you need to sign up for the MLC to get your mechanical royalties. And you need to sign up for, of course, a performing arts organization to get your performance royalties. So head on over to themlc.com and sign on up. Thank me later. I wrote the song and that show keeps getting licensed, keeps getting, you know, it's on Netflix now and it keeps, you know, it's, it's wherever. And so I'm, I'm still getting paid for that. And, you know, I've had, I don't know, maybe 50 placements over the course of my career in various things, levels from like the real world, which was like back in the day, they didn't pay shit. I don't know if they even paid anything. They were just like, here, you know, do whatever, which at the time was like, all right, whatever. I want to get my music out there. And they put my name on the screen and that was really cool. And then I got, you know, performance royalties on the back end. So like when all is said and done, maybe I made 500, 600 bucks for that placement in the back end royalties. But like you said, those add up. And that's why my ASCAP checks, you know, are still coming in uh, these days. Um, and that's the what you call the mailbox money. That's cool. Um, you did mention something about retitling, and I want to just hit on what that means. And um, if you, I, I've noticed, um, I guess, music libraries doing this some more, and maybe you can differentiate uh, between libraries and sync agents like yourself and what retitling means. I don't know, maybe Chase, you want to take this one. I, yeah, I could talk about retitling the chase if you want to attack the music library side. Cool. Go for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why don't you start, Charles, with uh, what music libraries are and then and then or uh, library 
either one. Take, take <laughs> I, I threw two questions at you. You guys decide what you want to split up. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, so I'll take the retitled straightforward. And um, so for our, for argument's sake, let's say, Ari, if you if you wrote a song called Big Mammoth Snow, okay? Yep. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to retitle it, meaning I'll, we'll put, we'll re-register the song in uh-huh. ASCAP. And then we'll call it Big Mammoth Snow and then BB in parentheses. So when I pitch that song and it goes on a cue sheet, it's going to have Blue Buddha, you and I, whatever agreement we come to, I'm going to share some of the publishing. And then by placing that version of the song, the income is split on, on whatever we agree on. Got it. And so you're only so so the people that that uh, do the retitling agreements and and um, this is so they can track what they got on their placements. So like if you pitched a song um, to a TV show and they use the version that you pitch, it's the same song, you would know that that was your work because they used the title of the song. Big Man with Snow, Snow BB versus my version, which I distributed to everywhere else. Big Man with Snow, that's it. Um, and that, okay. And so why, and so talk to me about who is doing retitling and why or why not someone should take those kinds of deals. Absolutely. So in some cases, um, because there is a big lion's share on the back end performance income, mm-hmm. some agents will make the argument and say, hey, you know, it's our relationship, it's our blood, sweat, equity. If it mm-hmm. wasn't for us, you know, the deal wouldn't get landed. So they, that's how they justify sharing in the, the performance income. So it's a moral, ethical. Some folks are cool with it, some aren't. And I always, you know, when we started 2002 with two other business partners, you know, we took we took the the straight road of hey, I'm not a, I'm not a up front. straight up publisher, and yeah. then the other uh, approach, some individuals will retitle where they're working with say they work with five different sick agents, mm. and then then there's but it, it creates a quagmire. Because if there's a bunch of the same song, but it's retitled, yep. there could be ramifications later, confusion, and you know, on cue sheet, it's, it, it, you know, it gets messy. And I'm assuming music supervisors probably don't want to be pitched the same song by two different sync agents because then the supervisor sitting there like, well, who owns the rights? Who do I clear this with? And now they're probably getting a little afraid that uh, there's some funny business happening on the back end <laughs> because typically they're... D- they're used to dealing with, you know, one party that own that that controls or represents uh, the rights to clear that song. Is that right? Yes, and that's a great segue to you know exclusivity versus non-exclusive. Yeah, you know, when you're exclusive with a sync agent for a year, for argument's sake, you know, it actually gives us leverage. Supers love seeing that that they know we're committed. They're not getting five calls, five pitches, and they're inboxes blowing up from a bunch of agents yep so then that would be non-exclusivity and then it just shows hey we're committed we're going to give it our go for a year and we're not going to hassle the super with 20 emails what's going on yeah yeah so yeah that's that that's the benefit of going exclusive 
Okay, so Blue Buddha is exclusive um, in, in that, um, you know, if you work with an artist and they give you the list of songs that they want you to work for them, your agreement says, uh, we, our term is maybe a year, and we have, uh, you're giving us the rights and the permission to be your exclusive sync agent, meaning you can't go work with anyone else, another sync agent, a music library, anything to work your songs that you've given us for the year. Is that is that what exclusivity means? Correct. And actually, you know, there's a little wrinkle there that okay. <clears throat> over the years, you know, there's exclusive already to the song mm-hmm. and then there's exclusive to the artist. Okay. So, you know, we worked out cases where, you know, say if I were pitching your songs, you know, hey, Charles, I got 100 songs. I'm going to give you 50 exclusive Mm-hmm. And we're going to delineate those songs in the Schedule A. And then Schedule A is just a list of songs at the end of the contract. 100% correct. Mm-hmm. And then, you you know, full transparency, you'll say, hey, Charles, and then I'm going to have, you know, Chase Music pitch my other 50 songs. Mm. But there's no overlap of Got the it. songs. Got it. So, Chase, talk to me about what a uh, music library is. I'm assuming this falls into the non-exclusive category and how this all works in that side of the industry. Yeah, um, a, a, a music library. You can you can think of the difference between a music library and a sync agent, um, sort of similar to the difference between if you're looking for a photo, going to a stock photo website or going to a uh, an, an independent photographer who has their catalog of curated photos that they've mm. selected themselves. Um, now, within that, music libraries tend to work more with um, producers who can crank out a ton of instrumental tracks um, at, on a very consistent basis. Um, where sync agents tend to work more with artists who are creating music more in the space of developing an artist brand mm-hmm. um, rather than just pumping out content as much as possible. Um, and so the difference in those business models tends to be that music libraries um, tend to get more tend to get a greater frequency of placements overall, but mm-hmm. those placements tend to be, slightly lower budget because they're they're not the kinds of tracks that are getting the big budget right in your face you know plays for two minutes across a whole scene kind of placement got it okay and um yeah we had so when i sometimes do research and i'm looking at the songs that are placed on on tv shows i'll use a website like um what is it? Tune find? Is that one of them? Or yeah. And, and they'll like list all these songs. And sometimes, you know, they'll list songs by artists that I know of and I've heard of or or can look them up and I find them. And then other times they sometimes will list songs um, and, and it says like extreme music or something like that. And, and I've come to learn that extreme music is like a music library. And when I had Lindsay Wolfington on the show, uh, she's a music supervisor and, and she she was did One Tree Hill back in the day, and now she does um, uh, and All the Boys and, and a bunch of other shows. She's she's um, like a superstar in the music supervising world. She was saying that for some of her shows, she has a budget, and typically, you know, 
she has enough budget to place like three um real artists if you go that route from like super from sync agents you know and then but she needs like maybe 15 songs throughout the episode maybe for the bar background of music whatever and so she'll spend like maybe you know if she's got like twenty thousand dollars for music for that episode she might spend like fifteen thousand five apiece five thousand five thousand five thousand on those nice big songs that are going to be able to those two minute montage moments and then five thousand for like 10 background songs you know at 500 dollars a pop yeah um that y- you need music in the scene but like no one's paying attention to the music and you might not even realize it's there and so like like you said producers that can pump out a lot of stuff it's that background music and that's like you know i i think we remember the uh controversy a few years back of the quote-unquote fake artists on spotify and it's the same concept it's the you know they're 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 not fake. It's not. It's not AI yet. It's <laughs> which is coming, and that is, right. I believe it will be taking the jobs from those music libraries. And and if it's not happening yet, those producers should probably start thinking about another line of work because um, the background music like that AI can do. Now I don't think the AI is going to be you know replacing any um, you know actual artists these days um, in the real sense of fans becoming you know fans of artists but that's a whole other discussion we'll get into another time but um you know but that all being said um it's those songs that are so far in the background that they can just pay a little bit of money 500 bucks and the music library um from my understanding and and maybe it's different both places some uh will enlist producers like you said and maybe do like work for hires so the producer essentially gives up the rights and it's like here use the song and they still get paid when they get it but now they don't have to worry about any of the back end or something like that. and sometimes they maintain their ownership or i don't know can you speak to that at all with with the ownership or or rights with with libraries as well most definitely um i've noticed a lot of the um micro sync licensing libraries particularly the ones that are pitching for um or or collecting i guess for youtube licenses and Mm. for tiktok licenses and and things like that tend to skew toward owning the material and you're basically you're you're uh, signing an agreement that that transitions your ownership to them so that they're the exclusive um representer of that material yeah i mean so so there and this is a this is a spectrum and this is kind of a sliding scale because it's it's what i've realized it's not super black or white in terms of you have sync agents and you have music libraries anymore i feel like it might have been more so that way 10 15 years ago now like we had the we had um the music bed i had uh daniel mccarthy on from the music bed and um they're kind of a hybrid they do both they're like they have a library component where supervisors or filmmakers or or people making YouTube videos that want the you know don't want their video taken down or, or monetized uh, by somebody else and they want to be able to monetize it, they'll go to the music bed uh, and they will just one stop themselves these indie you know filmmakers whatever and license the song for maybe a hundred two hundred three hundred bucks. And it's not for big TV spots or commercials or anything like that. But they'll also have a roster of artists that they will be pitching to music supervisors. And it's kind of this hybrid situation, um, you know. And because from a library standpoint, I see 
like you mentioned, kind of uh, passive versus active. And I feel like the libraries aren't pitching necessarily. Like they're not receiving briefs and pitching. The libraries are more so um, they almost they're almost like a a storefront, and people can kind of just go to them and and check the songs they want and then check out and just pay and they know the rights that they're getting and so it's extremely passive um and people use this for wedding videos youtube style videos corporate training videos whatever and also some some tv shows but it deals with a different kind of set of rights and um it might not be a hundred dollars it might be five hundred dollars or something but it's so quick and so passive Cool. Um, so I want to transition a little bit. Um, Charles, what do you look for in artists when you are looking to um, sign them to your roster? And, and how often are you signing artists? And how does that all work? Yeah, you know, I mean, my background from the label side, I came from marketing and radio and did some DJing, DJing in the heyday. So my ears are trained where, you know, it's all about the hook and the production and sort of loosely. If I hear a song that could be on the radio, that typically will equate to being sync friendly. And as far as all it checks off all the boxes that I'm looking mm. for, you know, oh, my God, this, you know, it still gives me that, you know, that that feeling of like I'm at a record shop looking, digging into the crates. This yeah. artist is amazing. And, and then, you know, the storytelling, you know, will the song sync up to picture? Because, you know, as a sync agent, yeah. you know, Chase and I, we're in the business, we're selling emotion. Yeah. So we're only as good as the artists that we work with and their songs and the storytelling, you know, um, you know, if we work with artists that all they write is love songs. Hey, that's great. But you know, that's only one sliver of the pie when we're getting briefs, you know, there's, you know, so kind of looking at the lay of the land of, you know, do they have those qualities, the it factor, you know, uniqueness in the voice, the production. Um, do I feel it just, you know, so subjective what I might feel you may be like, ah, eh, you know, it's, it's, it's whatever. So then as far as how often, you know, that's a continual, we do have, you know, our label partners and clients that we work with a handful that they continually give us new content. But still, what I really get, get to get up in the morning and amps me up is working with, you know, independent artists that that are just doing it on their own. And I find them yeah. on Spotify or find them in the IG feed. And to be able, you know, we have countless stories where, you know, uh, working with an independent artist, we help place them and, and their team behind them. They blew up the next day. They got signed to a label. Uh, Flora Cash was is one example. We worked with Lenka, you know, mm. early days, and then they go on and get signed. And they were like, "Hey, you know, that we did our we did what we had to do as a sync agent. You know, get the looks, get the placement for that artist, and be part of that team because it's so mm. integral as an independent artist as you're building your team. Who's your sync agent? Who's your manager? Do they have the relationships?" And, you know, the rest is up to timing and, and, and a lot of luck and, and, and hard work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to manage expectations for artists, um, I guess when you bring an artist onto your roster, how do you help? Like, what should an artist expect 
uh, how many how many placements should they expect? They now have Blue Buddha Entertainment, widely respected for two decades in the industry, working on their behalf. Uh, are they going to be millionaires tomorrow? Are they going to get you know uh, placements every other day? Like, what are the expectations, and how does this work? Like, how do you communicate to your artists so they they can manage those expectations and know what to expect? So yeah, I mean. It is now compared to early days, it is a longer slog, so to speak, as far as, you know, competition, uh, there's, you know, everyone has a studio, everyone has the talent is there, um, with libraries, independent artists, uh, globally, we're competing, you know, with, with publishers, labels, art, music's everywhere. So then whether it comes, does the song sync to picture? Mm -hmm. So to manage the expectation, you know, if we work with artists and we get them those looks, meaning, you know, at the end of the day, after a year or six months, and we say, hey, we pitched your songs to these shows, we didn't get the placement because creatively it, it didn't fit, but we got you the looks. So at the bare minimum, you know, getting those looks where are, is your song considered? for 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 a placement you know and ha having those relationships so you know are they going to be swimming in the dough year one maybe maybe not but it's it's building that story and when we do get that first placement then we you know we use that as marketing promotion and then maybe we'll, we'll do a meet and greet you know mm -hmm. if the artist is performing get the soups down because as you, you know, there's no replacement for seeing an artist live and in, yes. in, in, in the flesh. And, you know, when that, when a, when a super experiences seeing an, an artist perform live and, and then they go back the next day, they're working on a brief, that song is in their head. Like, ah, I can't, you know, that hook is there. And then, yeah. you know, when they're going through their music of 5,000 songs, they're like, Hey, you know, Chase Walker band, boom. I'm, uh, he's a great guy. I want to help him. Yeah. I love that, and that's a that's a um, a really great point. And um, you know, going back to my my One Tree Hill placement, um, you know, I had actually tweeted that song to Lindsay uh, five months before it got placed, and you know, stayed in touch over Twitter and kind of stayed top of mind. And granted, you know, this was 2010; it, things worked a little bit differently then. But at the same time, like when there was an opportunity to place that song she clearly had been like either listening to it or had filed it away in a folder that was like this here with the metadata that chase was talking about earlier with kind of the feeling emotion lyrics you know with a refrain and whatever so when she needed that song five months later that's when i got the contract and I had like five hours to sign it. And that was like kind of like <laughs> it was five months and five hours of like, to, you know, to get that placement. And so, I mean, that's a really good point that you're talking about relationship building and to, you know, music supervisors are music fans, too. And so it's like, I mean, I remember hearing music supervisors speak on panels talking about how. They were huge fans of artists that had been pitched to them. They hadn't had an opportunity to place their song, not because they didn't like the song. It just, like you said, creatively, it didn't fit in the spot. And that, I think, is like the hardest thing for artists to wrap their head around is that if they don't get placed, it's not because their music is bad. It's mm. because it doesn't fit specifically exactly 
to the producer, to the director, to the showrunner's liking. Yeah. And to and, and it just doesn't fit in that one very, very, very specific scene. It might be the best song ever written. But if it doesn't fit <laughs> the scene, it's not going to get used. Yep. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Go for uh, it. Thanks. Yeah, no, 100%. Just because it, it popped back to my, in my mind already, you know, a, a very specific brief we got the other day. And I'll be succinct as possible. But basically... It was an overhead montage scene. Someone's in paradise on the beach. So first half of the song has to be joyous, joyous and celebratory. Ah. And then there's a switch. The person picks up the phone. They get bad news. So the music has to pivot huh. into despair and dread and melancholy. So the big ask is how many songs are going to start out happy and then sad and the lyrics. <laughs> yeah. So wow. it was, a, that was a tough one, you know, and, and, yeah. and, and then whether we have it, then, you know, being Zen with the supers and say, Hey, you know, thanks, but we'll get you next time. I'm not going to waste their time and send them 10 tracks that don't fit. If right. I do, they're like, Hey man, you don't know what you're doing. You're pitching craft. We can't use. And I just wasted 20 minutes listening to 10 tracks. So that is another Zen, you know, the, the discipline and knowing, you know, hey, thanks, but, you know, we'll get you next time. Mm. Yeah. Chase, did you want to say something about it? I was just going to say it, it's if there's one thing that artists, independent artists particularly should know about sync is that it's a numbers game. Mm. There's no I've heard this from directly from the um, senior vice president of the sync department at Sony said this. Mm. There's no way to guarantee any particular artist for any particular placement. Mm. It, it would be great if the supervisors that we pitched to were the ones making the final call on the scenes and anything they liked goes, you know what I mean? Sure. But basically when we send them our music, they then make folders of all the music that they get from all of their different sources. And they pitch that to the the showrunner or the director or the, the music director whoever whoever is there higher up on them got it that particular production so being that it's so bureaucratic it's all about how many times are you getting your song in front of the supervisor and mm -hmm. are you sticking in that supervisor's mind are they falling mm -hmm. you know are cool. like do do they want to come back and use your music Nice. That's great. And that's, uh, yeah, that's super helpful. And I think puts things in perspective. Um, because, you know, as I wear two hats, uh, frequently, I'm, I wear the artist hat, uh, and then I can wear the manager hat or the business hat hat or whatever. And like, when I have my artist hat on, I, it's in a very, it's a very emotional hat. And, uh, <laughs> I take things extremely personally and then I have to switch hats and put that manager and be like, no, 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 <laughs> let's keep it in perspective. Like, it's not because you're worthless. It's not because your music sucks. It's because it doesn't necessarily work right now in this spot. And like, you gotta like, you know, think about that. So, um, I, I guess what is your biggest piece of advice? Uh, and I want to hear from both of you on this, uh, for artists that want to be successful getting their songs synced, uh, what would you, what's your biggest piece of advice for them? Um, yeah, Charles, why don't you start us off? That's good. So, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> straight off the bat, I would say, you know, do your homework, whether that's if you're deciding that you want to work with a sync agent 
let's say you do that route. So, hey, know who you're, you're approaching, what kind of, you know, if they approach Bubuda, all right, Bubuda is who's our roster, what type of music do we vibe with? Mm -hmm. And then do your due diligence. Can you talk the talk and walk the walk? If I say, is it one stop rep? Do you have co-write splits? Uh, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, that's a non-starter because, you know, time's of the essence in, in these deals. And then the yes. second route is, you know, if they decide to go with their own with music supers, same thing, do your homework. But, you know, I'm always going to advocate and say, hey, benefit of working with an agent, you know, you're going to have a higher hit ratio of going through a seasoned vet versus, you know, if you try it your own. But if, you know, there are cases where where artists will go into events and make relationships with supers. And, you know, but it takes time. You you know, you're mm -hmm. that's a perfect example. Lindsay's great. You know her from back in the day. Mm -hmm. But now more than ever, you know, they're 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 bombarded. And yep. it's it's so do your homework, due diligence on both sides. Cool. Chase. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think I mean, definitely for any artists out there looking to get syncs, definitely find a sync agent, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, I think most supervisors are just too busy to be uh if they even listen to your music in the first place yeah that's fortunate enough and if they decide that it's good enough that they want to go through the trouble of making sure that it's clearable because it's from some random person that they don't know mm -hmm. that's you know you have your odds get less and less and less basically um but the other thing is um look up you know, artists that are making stuff, the, the, the artists that, that you take inspiration from, um, who, who, do, who do you make music like and what placements are they getting and what, what of their catalog is working for them? Mm. Go find a sync agent that works with that kind of stuff. Well, that's great. And I, I love that. And, and Chase, I'm actually curious because uh, you being a musician yourself as well, um, when you're creating and you're writing uh, or you're in the studio recording, do you think about the briefs now that you're a sync agent and a musician? Do you do you have that sync agent hat on when you're in the studio recording and um, writing and recording? That's a really great question. And honestly, we could have a whole hour long <laughs> conversation just about this. But, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's a tough balance between writing something that doesn't get in the way of it being widely applicable. Um, mm. As like I said, it's a numbers game. So Universal, you, yeah. anything that you you're pitching for sync, you want it to be as widely applicable to any, any scene as possible. Well, not any scene, but like as many scenes as it could. Yeah, sure. Um, but then on top of that, music supervisors really want to hear something and really want to place something that has that artist touch to it. Mm. Um, that doesn't sound like it was crafted specifically for a fight scene or whatever. You know, they they want something that feels authentic to an artist. Um, sure. And so it, it's just about balancing the 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 decisions that you make in the writing and the recording process as far as like how artsy should I go with this? How multidimensional can I make this without going so complex that it only fits one specific scene? Yeah. So how do you make, how do you handle that? What do you do when you're writing and recording? I mean, are you, I guess, is that a long way of saying like you do, you are thinking about this and you just, do you acknowledge the, the challenge of, of, of 
that uh, feat that you just described? Or do you just now know that inherently and you've now changed your style of writing to be more widely applicable, be more universal? So maybe, pre, you know, like I, I think there's a trend now in, in folk songwriting or just, I guess, singer-songwriter songwriting where we're using a lot of proper nouns. We're using a lot of very specific descriptors of you know, uh, I went to the pharmacy and Sarah, my friend, was there. And then we walked down to Al's diner and I ate some pancakes. And like, that's a style of songwriting that is very popular right now, where it's like, that's not going to work if the friend in the show is actually named Tanya and they're not eating at Al's diner, but they're eating at Tony's pizza shop. And that that's going to be conflicting in the scene so i guess when you're writing have you have you changed your style of writing to be more sync friendly i suppose yeah actually um well so to preface whenever i'm attacking a song and i'm trying to balance the the artistic side and the the business side of what i'm thinking about i always go at it with what does the song need artistically first and not even thinking about the business side? And then mm-hmm. once you have that, you filter what you're getting with the business side afterward when you're editing things. Mm. Um, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Well, um, no, I mean, you make a good point of, of when you're editing and you're thinking about the business side. So do you is your style of production, has that shifted now knowing what song, what what the production standards um are working most effectively and frequently in sync. Really, you want to go first at what feels most authentic to you and okay. then and then filter that down to what what is most often being placed. Um, mm. the 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 other thing that I've found to be helpful is like I said looking at other artists that are in your style that are getting those placements. For me, it happens to be like the Black Keys, for example. Mm. Yeah. When they released their debut album, they were the number one synced artist on Warner Brothers record label, which is yep. nuts. Yep. But um, a lot of their music, a lot of their early records are covers of these old, older blues tracks. Huh. But the writing in those tracks tends to be similar in that it it all leads up to a memorable hook line that's mm. simple in the mm. chorus that just covers the idea in as simple a way as possible. Mm-hmm. And you write out a verse that mm-hmm. leads you into that, that makes that chorus make sense. Mm-hmm. Write a second verse that maybe twists that idea slightly, you know, but is really just kind of regurgitating the same um, emotion, the same, the same message that was sure. built up to in the first chorus. Yeah. And that's if, if, if your song is about three or four different things at one time, it tends to break down the the impact that that song will have on that one main thing that you were initially writing it about. So by keeping it to one one main idea that's hit hard in the chorus, mm-hmm. developed in the in the verses, and that's it. Mm. Have a song that's that doesn't get in the way basically 
That's great. And and I love that you used uh, the Black Keys as an example because I, I you know, this is a band that is that has built a career with a massive fan base. Mm-hmm. Uh, they aren't just successful on sync. You know, it's not one of these bands that we know only from sync. Like it, there are a few of those that that are as well. They they were very successful on sync. Uh, don't really have much of a fan base. This is a band that has a hardcore, massive fan base that also succeeded in sync. And so, like to get back to your point of keeping that artistic integrity and and keeping that artist hat on first when you're creating they that's clearly what they did and it kind of just intersected um at the right moment in the cultural zeitgeist of what music supervisors showrunners directors producers were looking for and it just worked out really well and so to get back to your point charles of of how luck has something to do with it as well you know yes they're a great band they have artistic integrity their songs are great. Their production is really cool and hip and edgy and all those terms that probably appeared in briefs for five years after the black, you know, right. he's, um, and so, uh, that's, and so I like how you, to hear that you say you take inspiration from that and you've studied it and it's almost like you're a student now of sync because you've now seen how this all works and you can now internalize it to the point of when you are writing and producing and creating the music, it's now almost second nature, but maintaining that artistic integrity first and foremost, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Cause if, if you lose, if you lose that artistic integrity and that the, the particular tone that that gives to a song and a track, then you might as well pitch through a library because mm. those are the kinds of placements that you'll be getting. Great. Well, guys, this has been um, so enlightening. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and educating our audience and pulling the curtain back a bit on what you guys do. Um, you know, sync licensing is something that is so elusive to so many, but is also one of the most uh, most things that I get asked about the most uh, is sync. And and you guys both did an incredible job of breaking this whole crazy, confusing side of the industry down. Um, I appreciate all of your work. You know, when I talk to music supervisors and I'm like, who are the, who are your favorite sync agents? Blue Buddha always comes up. And so I, you know, you have built that reputation. It's very strong in the space. And, um, you know, I, I uh, appreciate the work that you're doing for the indie artists that you're fighting for. So I have, uh, I have one final question that I ask everybody who comes on the show. And uh, that is, what does it mean to you to make it in the new music business? Chase, why don't you start and Charles can finish us off. Sounds good. Well, to keep it short, um, you know, as so long as as you're able to make a living, pay your bills and and have the kind of lifestyle that you're comfortable with through the creation of music, that's success to me. But particularly my success as far as my own music, I want to retain a level of the business being about the creation of the music because that's Mm. a thing that's something that i feel like a lot of independent artists might struggle with currently where Mm. in an age of content and everything Mm. has to be content based and you you have to have new merchandise out it's all about because music has been devalued through streaming and all that and that's a whole nother conversation but uh, it's all about monetizing your audience base. And so yeah. for me, if I can, if I can 
find a way to monetize the creation of my music through the audience base and balance that where it's not just a, a business of audit, monetizing an audience, but it's the business of creating the music. That's success for me. Awesome. Charles, how about you? Ari, thank you for having us. And it, the hour went, it went quick. So we would, you got to have us back as it's, it's, it's a two part <laughs> we'll conversation. Have a part two for sure. Yeah, yes, for definitely. Sure. But to hit it on your, uh, on that, you know, I, I would break it down in three phases, you know, with the artists working with their team, if they decide, hey, we got a th three-year plan and to make it the new music biz, year one, we want to double our Spotify listeners. Mm -hmm. Year two, we want to get five syncs. Year three, we want to be selling out three ven local venues in, in, in our, our hometown. Yep. And look at each metric along the way, year one, year two, year three. And if you're making marginal gains in each area and your mm -hmm. team behind you, you, you got... You, they have the ability to re to pivot what's not working, what's working. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and in that regard, that's how I would measure success of the new music biz. I love that. Charles, Chase, thank you guys so much. This is great. Thank you. Rock and roll. Thanks so much for having us. All right. Today's episode was edited by Maxton Hunter, theme music by Brassroots District, and produced by all the great people at Ari's Take. Real quick, I want to let you know about TuneCore. Well, I'm sure you already know about TuneCore, but you might not know that TuneCore recently, over the last couple of years, has changed a lot of its platform for the better. And, uh, you know, I've been, I've been talking and reviewing TuneCore uh, for the last gosh, 10, 12 years or so. And this is the biggest update to TuneCore that they have ever done. And this is a great move from TuneCore. What they've done is they moved to an unlimited pricing plan. So where we're at kind of in the current stage of release strategy and recommended practices for how to release your music. Yeah, you got to be releasing more music more frequently than just dropping an album once every three years. So to uh, accommodate this, they now have an unlimited pricing tier, which means you can distribute unlimited music for an annual price. They have also integrated splits, payment splitting. So whether you want to cut your cutting your producer or other collaborators, maybe some session musicians, you want to cut them into some of your streaming revenue, you can do that very easily on the TuneCore platform. And another thing that I love about TuneCore is their publishing program. They have TuneCore Admin Publishing. So, you know, I've talked a lot about this on the article on the distribution comparison chart on Ari's Take. But I wanted to let you know about these new initiatives that TuneCore is up to and everything that TuneCore is doing. Head over to TuneCore.com, check it out for yourself, sign up for a program, distribute some of your music, and you'll see for yourself. Yeah.